this week on the Back Table Podcast. The fundamental question for me is, do you consider infertility a disease? That classification is important because once we recognize and accept the idea of infertility being a disease and something that warrants treatment, we suddenly have this population who have what before was essentially an incurable form of the disease, and now we have a treatment for it. And I think fundamentally, a lot of people who are against uterus transplant, there is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, a resistance to this underlying concept of infertility being a disease. And welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and I've got our co-host today, Amy Park. Dr. Amy Park from Cleveland, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, I was worried you had forgotten about us completely, but you were just doing other work, important stuff, I assume. You know me, yeah, I'm busy. Everybody's good though, family's good? Yeah, yeah, how about you? Awesome, everybody's good. Good. Busy, like you said, but well, awesome, awesome guest today. I'm, I'm excited to learn about what he does. We have Dr. Elliot Richards, Director of Research for the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at the Cleveland Clinic. He is here to talk about uterine transplant, and he has uh, written quite a lot on uterine transplant, and he's involved in their uterine transplant program, which is part of the first trial in the U.S. for uterine transplant, second program with a successful live birth, and he also is an active surgeon operating on patients with endometriosis and fibroids. Dr. Richards, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Elliot also has his own lab, basic science lab and learner. An actual physician scientist. How do you do it? He's a multi-hyphenate too. I don't <laughs> think I'm a multi-hyphenate. I think this is all I do. This is all I've got. He's a clinician, surgeon, scientist, educator. My imposter syndrome is raging right now, just to be honest. Well, welcome to the show. We're very excited to have you. It's a big topic, but we'll try to do our best in the name of time to get to the the meat here, which is uterine transplant. So talk to us a little bit about how you got interested in uterine transplant, about your career and how you ended up doing what you're doing now. Yeah. And thank you for that wonderful introduction. So for myself and my place in uterus transplant, it really was something that uh, fell into right place, right time. Amazing mentors when I came to Cleveland Clinic who were involved. And I was not here at at the clinic for the first transplant, but then every subsequent one was able to to scrub in and be part of and and really was excited, couldn't get enough. And as there was shifting of different roles and, and turnover over the years, just suddenly found myself leading the GYN efforts in the program and really had some huge shoes to fill following Dr. Rebecca Flick, who was one of the pioneers here at the Cleveland Clinic and turned over a lot of this to me just a couple years back. Wow. So not something you were doing, something that was being done when you got there and really just like it became kind of a passion of yours. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was, to be honest, before I got here, it really didn't exist in the United States, just just really in two centers at that time, uh, Cleveland Clinic and at Baylor Dallas. I remember when I did some of my training at Mayo Clinic and and we were visited by Mats Brandstrom and, and his team from Sweden and telling his story. And I remember just being, this is so amazing. And I had no idea at that moment that, you know, just a couple of years later, I would be part of, you know, one of the American teams. That's so funny how that works. Yeah. And, and I tell my trainees that Honestly, that that quote about eighty percent is just showing up. I mean, that that's really what it was for me. Is that I showed enthusiasm, I scrubbed in, I came to the, none of these required things, but just showing that interest. And and as you show interest, and and you you get on papers, and you say, hey, let's do this, let's do this idea, and suddenly more and more, you get more and more responsibility and more collaborations. And and so it's a great example of being in the right place at the right time, but also you know having that enthusiasm and interest. So I'm very, very fortunate to be part of this program. Yeah. And, and you mentioned Matt's Brandstrom. So I remember I went to AEGL one year and I think he was one of the keynote speakers. And I remember being like, honestly, like a little confused, like, why do we need uterine transplant? And I mean, it was obviously not part of my practice as a MIG surgeon, but talk to us first about the history of uterine transplant. And with that, maybe like touch on kind of why it was started, why it's being done. Yeah, what's really fascinating is when you talk with the early pioneers, including Matt's, 
they had the same reaction, actually. Like, why uterus transplant? Or that, that's crazy. And Matt's, he can certainly should speak for himself. And, and if you ever have the opportunity to, to chat with him, but my impressions from conversations with him, I got to hang out with him actually at our, the international conference just last fall and was able to get the story again from him. But it really was uterus transplantation in the modern era has been patient driven and patient demand. And his story, as I understand it, truly was a patient saying, why can't we do this? Why, why can't we do uterus transplant for me? And you know, his reaction first is like, that's crazy. And then as he thought about it more, and, and it's been a similar story, I think, for all the early pioneers and the first time hearing it being like, this seems absolutely ridiculous. But as you learn more about the patients and, and also the process and it begins to make a lot more sense. And one of the goals that I have for this, our talk today, is I hope to convince some of your more skeptical listeners that this is actually something that we should take seriously. I think he also mentioned that where he's from, it's illegal. Surrogacy is illegal. You know, I know that in the state of Kentucky, actually, surrogacy is illegal. So we always think, oh, why don't you just, you know, throw that embryo in somebody else's uterus? But if that uterus is still in that person in many places in the world, that's not an option. And so certainly patients have the opportunity and the, and the autonomy to make decisions for themselves and uterine transplants, an interesting topic, but it, it's also the only option for some patients as well. So it's not been around very long, right? I mean, it's, this is not something people have been doing for a very long time. Well, and that's, that's actually a really interesting um, point is a lot of people don't realize that the first uterus transplant was almost 100 years ago. Did, did you see the um, a film that came out in 2015, The Danish Girl? Are you familiar with? Mm -mm. It's the story of uh, Lily Elba, who was a transgender woman and um, really excellent film. I, I recommend it very highly. But in one of these examples, and, and I'm disappointed you're not familiar with the film because it'd be a lot easier to explain. But you know, in the film during this this time, I mean, 1920s, where there wasn't a culture of, a, of understanding and acceptance of gender diverse individuals, this individual underwent a series of actually four gender affirming surgeries, and in 1931, eventually succumbed to organ failure, sepsis, and death secondary to a uterus transplant and vaginoplasty. But what's really fascinating in the film, it actually doesn't even capture the extent of what was done. And in the film, it's her second surgery and they mention, I think, vaginoplasty. But in reality, it was a uterus transplant. That, that's actually not mentioned in the film. Um, wow. and, it, and it was her fourth surgery. Now, this was 20 years before the first successful organ transplant, which was a kidney transplant in the 50s. Yeah. There were no other transplants before that. That's fascinating. There, there were no immunosuppressants. I mean- Wow. So there was a lot that wasn't known, but this is a great example of patients pushing and saying, you know, that, that I want this, this is part of gender affirming surgery for me in this case. And it's interesting because now we're starting to come full circle because there's a lot of serious discussion now about when are we going to offer uterus transplantation for gender diverse and transgender individuals. So it hasn't happened yet, and I do think that there are still some steps we need to take before we're ready to make that jump, but I do think that it's, it's in the near future. So yeah, so the first uterus transplant technically was in 1931. Not successful, but it attempted. Correct, correct. In the 50s and 60s, there was a series of animal experiments, mostly auto-transplantation first in dogs and then in primates, removing the uterus and putting it back into the same animal. To my knowledge, there was no demonstrated pregnancies at that time. The first sort of in the modern era uterus transplant was actually in 2000. Uh, that was in Saudi Arabia. It was a living donor. There's graft failure at about three months attributed to a uh, thromboembolism. And then in 2011 in Turkey, there was a deceased donor uterus transplant that was performed by a, a plastic surgeon. Interestingly enough, that patient delivered just about two years ago. And so she was on immunosuppression for almost a decade. Um, wow. And it was actually Matt's Brandstrom who partnered with them to sort of troubleshoot and they, they did some revisions of the graft and that's thought to be the reason why they were able to ultimately achieve pregnancy. But I think what's important about the Saudi Arabia and the uh, Turkish case is that these were not done in clinical trials, they're one-offs. The reason that, that the Swedish group are really considered the pioneers is they really took a systematic approach to uterus transplantation, actually starting with their own animal experiments 
And the first animal study showing successful pregnancy was actually in a mouse model in 2010 by Matt's Brandstrom's group. And so they really wanted to make sure, because I think Matt's recognized that a big failure would set back the field potentially even indefinitely. So they were really very careful and approached it very cautiously. Uh, unlike, you know, unfortunately, these, these two first attempts that were really just, again, one-offs and, hey, let's just do it because we can. What I consider, you know, the modern era of uterus transplantation truly began uh, with the Swedish group with their clinical trial in 2013 and then their successful live birth a year later in 2014. Tom Curry runs our research in our labs here at the University of Kentucky and knows Matt's, knew them from meetings and stuff, and was telling me all about, because I think I came home and talked to him all about that that talk. And he was like, oh, he would be sitting there chatting with me, like sewing, like, you know, microsurgery vessels on mice. Like he was just like, it was no big deal. He was just like doing, you know, reanastomosing all these, you know, vessels and doing transplants as he was just sort of chit-chatting. He did it countless times. And so by the time he got to the OR with a human, I imagine those vessels probably seemed like garden hoses. I mean, he had done it <laughs> for so long on these tiny, tiny models for it to work. So, I mean, the, the dedication and persistence and skill and all of those things that it takes to get to that point is just unimaginable to me, honestly. Yeah. And as he tells it, he was a bit of a, it sounds like a pariah in, during those years because, you know, at home, I think he was somewhat ridiculed for what he was attempting and trying to do. Isn't that always the case though? I mean, it seems like you, know, you have to fight everybody in your own institution to do something that the rest of the world's like dying to see. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an incredible story. Yeah. I have to admit when I first heard about uterine transplant, I was like, who would want to do that? Like just get a surrogate or, you know, obviously when you're on protocol, there's not as much cost to the patient, but it's a huge surgery. We're talking about grafts. We're talking about immunosuppressants and just hearing about it and the sheer technical aspect and psychological aspects. And also I have to give the pioneering surgeon so much credit because patients try and push us into things all the time. And you have to be really open-minded in entertaining these seemingly impossible endeavors and that can-do spirit and then saying, you know, why not instead of why or trying to come from a place of yes, I, I really do have to respect that. Yeah, I mean, initially thinking, oh, well, heart transplant makes sense, you can't live without a heart, lung, kidney, liver, this seems... Like someone saying, oh, we should just do it to see if we can. But like, you know, hearing it from that perspective, from the patient's perspective, understanding that we have transplants with the eyes and other things where they're, it's not life and death, but it's absolutely life, if that makes sense. And this is life for folks. I mean, the first generation of kidney transplant surgeons who worked with Dr. Starzl, I mean, a lot of them are around still. And it's so interesting. In fact, one of them, Dr. Tazakas at Cleveland Clinic, he was, I definitely want to give credit to him. He was really the person who brought it to the clinic, he was involved in Dr. Brandstrom's, uh, some of the uterus transplants in humans that were performed. He was a trainee of Dr. Starzl, uh, really the pioneer in transplant surgery. And, you know, as he tells it, a lot of the same attitudes that are about uterus transplant now were the same things were being said about kidney transplant and liver transplant in those early days. I think ultimately, because there are a lot of naysayers, and I think that this is not a clear-cut issue. There's a lot of complexity here and ethical questions to ask. And these ethical questions actually have been debated and, and talked about for actually decades at this point. So any concerns or points that people bring up either for or against uterus transplant, I can guarantee you that they've pretty much been talked about in depth. But I think the fundamental question for me is, do you consider infertility a disease? And that's something that ASRM and Resolve, which is an advocacy group in the United States for infertility, that really that classification is important. Because once we recognize and accept the idea of infertility being a disease and something that warrants treatment, we suddenly have this population who have what before was essentially an incurable form of the disease, and now we have a treatment for it. And I think fundamentally, a lot of people who are against uterus transplant there is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes a resistance to this underlying concept of infertility being a disease. And I've seen that in training along the way, right? I mean, I trained in Illinois where insurance covers female infertility. And then Ann Arbor, Michigan and, and back here in Kentucky where infertility is not, in a sense, treated like 
a disease, right? You know, if it's a disease, you would think health insurance should recognize it for that. And, and there should be a treatment for it, which it is a diagnosis. There is an ICD code. And we do have CPT codes for the procedures we do for these things, but it's not considered a disease by the institutions who we've charged in a sense for paying for management of those diseases. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, as you say, sometimes there's lip service given to it, but absolutely is not being seen as the disease that it is. One point that I wanted to make is that it's been known ever since the 90s, actually, that a diagnosis of infertility has the same stress and anxiety level on patients who suffer from infertility as a cancer or other diagnosis of a chronic condition. And so there's a, a massive impact on a person's well-being and mental health by having an infertility diagnosis. One of the rotations I was able to do as a Mayo Clinic resident was to go to Uganda and work in a Ugandan hospital. And it was so fascinating to me because there is amazing amounts of money flowing into Africa to help support family planning, which of course is a euphemism not for necessarily building families, but for contraception and birth control. And those are definitely very important things to give. But so many, so many women who were ostracized, I mean, the level of isolation that they felt and the loss of their social status was akin to fistula, which gets a lot of attention, you know, in Africa. But yet, as I shadowed this brilliant Ugandan gynecologist, his clinic was like, I don't know the exact numbers, but certainly felt like 75% infertility and patients coming from all over rural Uganda because there just simply is no money towards family building because the emphasis is so much on contraception. And I think we see something similar here that the United States, which has such lip service towards you know family values and family building, there's gross lack of funding and insurance coverage for fertility and conditions that cause infertility. It's hard to explain to patients you know, and they ask why. Trying to explain to a patient why we can't do something when those reasons have nothing to do with medicine, it can be very frustrating for both the patient and the physician. So for the societies that are doing the work, it's incredibly important that they do the work. And so your advocacy, you know, we're grateful for that. When it comes to uterine transplant, though, and this is something that, again, I think certainly, you know, in doing some homework for this, it's not something I learned about in residency because it was something that was being done with any regularity when I was in residency. But can you walk us through the process in terms of patient selection? Who is a candidate for uterine transplant? How are we deciding who gets them, et cetera? So all the way through, you know, a pregnancy, can you do that in a way that's won't waste your whole night with it? I'm sure it's a very simple process, but. Yeah, yeah. Can I do it in a way that's concise? So yeah, absolutely. Let me back up just a second though and, and say that uterus transplant is an interesting time in that it is beginning to transition from experimental science to really a curative treatment that is on its way to being potentially a gold standard care for patients with absolute uterine factor infertility. And in fact, the uh, group in Dallas now has a cash pay uterus transplantation that's outside of a clinical trial. And they've had three patients who have paid for uterus transplantation. University of Alabama now, they started a trial of, I believe they're funded for 25 uh, uterus transplants, and they elected not to do it under a clinical trial. And so this change is happening. Now for us at Cleveland Clinic and at Penn, both of our centers are still doing this work through a clinical trial, but this transition is happening. And it's happening because the efficacy truly has been established. By the way, how, how much does it cost? How much are they charging? Yeah. So it'd be great if we had Lisa uh, Johannesson uh, on the call to, to speak. I believe it's on the ballpark of around 200000 might be 250 I believe that covers IVF and the pregnancy and delivery. So it's like a full package, but don't quote me. Um, this is my understanding of, of the rough estimates. I mean, I'm not answering the question you first asked, but you know, that, that's a big thing that our centers are working on. And one thing I, just as another aside, it's really so wonderful being in uterus transplantation is that it's incredibly collaborative uh, between us, the Baylor group, the UAB group, and Penn, where we're you know sharing data, we're sharing things that we've learned. So that's one of the things that we're working on right now is cost effectiveness analysis. And 
you know, we're building some models and we hope to publish in the next year. But there's going to be some arguments that can be made about, especially for patients who want more than one child, that even putting aside the lack of access to gestational surrogacy for a lot of people in different states and, and certainly European countries, but there may even be some economic arguments for uterus transplantation. But that's getting off topic for what you, you asked. In terms of walking through the whole process, I, I also want to say it's important to recognize who this is for. And I was mentioning, sort of setting the stage, talking about it being under the guise first of clinical research, because the patients who have gone through and gotten uterus transplant, and I should say, you know, we have over 31 babies born at this point in the United States, but the vast majority of patients who have gone through, they have been uh, Mayer, Rokotansi, Kuser, Hauser, or malarinogenesis patients, vast majority. But when we look at the 5,000 people who have contacted our three centers, meaning Ben, Baylor, and Cleveland Clinic, that's actually only about 20% of the applicants. And so because this has really started out as a clinical research trial, we've really selected the best prognosis patients, but this doesn't reflect the actual true population that suffers from AUFI, absolute uterine factor infertility. There's huge problems with disparities, that these are most often white women, and that's not a reflection of the patients who are suffering, particularly when you look at secondary AUFI, hysterectomy. I mean, it's estimated that as high as 15% of reproductive age women have had a hysterectomy. We're talking potentially hundreds of thousands of women who might, uh, of course, that doesn't mean they're all interested in carrying their own child and taking on the risks of uterus transplantation but potentially a huge population in the United States that might be interested. But really, it's been just a very small subset. So in terms of our trial and who's selected, they go through an extremely rigorous process. And with the thousands of people who have contacted our center, you know, we've really only selected essentially a dozen women to be recipient candidates. But the hope and goal has always been to expand access to this treatment to more women. So that was a big aside from what you asked. So let me let me start walking you through. So I should say we've done essentially no advertising. When this was posted on clinicaltrials.gov, we had people knocking down our door. And it's so interesting hearing their stories, how word of mouth, and in many cases, families who said 10 years ago to their child, who in many cases was discovered at you know age 15, 16, 17, when she wasn't having periods like her friends and and suddenly this life-altering diagnosis, I can think of one in particular, her father telling her, you know, one day they're going to be able to give you a uterus. And this particular father would send her news clippings of Matt's Brandstrom's work. And that was just one of many patients who found us and found our trial. These aren't people who were coming to RAI clinics 10 years ago, right? These are people who were silent in the infertility world because... There was no discussion. There was no like, oh, well, let's see if we can't do this because there was nothing to do. And not, yeah, I mean, the way you've described all the potential patients, it just seems like an overwhelmingly big task uh, once you sort of open this door, all the people who want to get in. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I you know, hadn't thought about it in those terms. Yeah. I mean, certainly there was marketing and reaching out to media outlets. And so I'm not going to say there was no, I mean- definitely no direct advertising, but there's definitely exposure. But beyond that, we essentially closed off our trial because we, we found all of our candidates relatively quickly. And we still got, again, no, no advertising, just people finding clinicaltrials.gov, the email address on there, and just getting hundreds and hundreds of, of people contacting us. So there is a lot of demand here. And I think while I'm talking about this one particular woman, and she was actually our first successful live birth, her story is, I think, so fascinating because she actually had a child through gestational surrogacy. And it was such an awful experience for her because she had such a loss of control and sort of reproductive autonomy with what the surrogate was doing and all that goes behind that, that she wanted a second child, but absolutely did not want to do gestational surrogacy again. So even though it was you know, an option and something that she had tried before. She looked at all the risks and the unknowns, particularly at that time when she was admitted to the trial and said, 
you know, this is important enough to me and I, I don't want to go back to, to using a, a surrogate again. Wow. It's like that movie, Baby Mama. Have you guys heard about this movie? I haven't, no. They have this surrogate and she's doing all the things that just make your toes curl. She's drinking, she's smoking, she's partying, she's carrying the fetus. But um, what in particular makes somebody a good candidate to undergo the surgery? I mean, I'm assuming there's physical components, there's psychosocial support, there's all sorts of things, you know, stable relationship. I don't know. I'm not sure. Like, do you say it's okay for a single woman to undergo this? Like, I don't know. Yeah. So again, I can only speak for our clinical trial in terms of our screening criteria, which because we really designed our trial as one of the very first in the world, by necessity, it was a lot more stringent inclusion criteria with, with the hope that they can expand access as efficacy is shown and moving on to potentially more complex presentations and patients. So there's, first of all, in the screening process, a lot of experts that they need to meet with. All of our, our candidates met with ethicists, with social workers, with psychologists. They needed to be willing to undergo anesthesia, IVF, a major surgery, a high-risk pregnancy, and really multiple surgeries. Um, they need to be willing to receive the high-dose immunosuppressive therapy, to receive vaccinations, and informed consent. What is informed consent? How can you truly you know, consent anyone, right? But there needed to be high level of understanding and education for these patients so they knew what they were signing up for, particularly at the beginning when we didn't really know how successful this was going to be because we really only had the first Swedish trial to go on. So very extensive screening into their medical history, and we had a, a BMI cutoff. Um, and a lot of these patients, again, malaria and agenesis, and, and so we would exclude patients if they had a uh, pelvic kidney, for example. If there's any history of cancer, for the exception of early stage cervical cancer, any history of hypertension, diabetes, hepatitis, HIV. And with our clinical trial, cisgender women, we, we did not, and it was actually a big area of discussion at the beginning in terms of will we allow single women versus do they need to be in a relationship? And ultimately, we decided you know, it was important that they had social supports, but they didn't necessarily need to have a partner or be married. We felt that that was just discriminatory and, and, and obviously some discrimination on the basis of you know, medical criteria we had to have just because it was early trial, but that social sort of discrimination was was deemed to be not a compelling argument to exclude those women. Interesting. Again, it seems like an incredible amount of work outside of just the technical aspect just to get these things off the ground in any way. Once you've selected a candidate, you know, you also have to find a uterus, right? My understanding is when Brandstrom was doing his, they these were live donors. Off family, is that right? Because I think the one he talked about was mother to daughter. Well, yeah. So in Sweden, and, and my understanding is in really every other European trial that I can think of, uh, the patient essentially has to bring their own directed donor. And the vast majority of cases, this was a, a mother to daughter. That in itself is somewhat problematic because it means it discriminates against people who don't have a willing family member. And, and family relationships are complex enough. I can't imagine a, a daughter to mother relationship, and then suddenly you're adding in the complexity of a donate uterus. And, and not even just when things go right, but also when things go wrong, because now there's a sense of guilt for a mother who's like, I've now failed my daughter twice. You know, I didn't give her a uterus and the uterus, then I gave her and uterus transplant failed. And there's certainly been some psychological fallout and sequelae from these failed transplants in, in the Swedish trial and others. In Dallas, they use actually non-directed donors, I believe exclusively. Um, these are labor and delivery nurses. And Dallas found not only just huge interest in potential recipients, but absolutely massive interest in being a donor, actually. I personally feel like the non-directed donor route, it is probably the best way to go. There was massive interest in being a donor. Being a donor, correct. Wow. Yeah. Is it just because hysterectomy, they were like going to Get their uterus out anyway, or they just... I would think you wouldn't want a uterus that somebody else wants out though, right? If someone's got big fibroids or heavy periods or adenomyosis, these have to be like great shape uteruses. Yeah. So these are multiparous women who felt that their childbearing was done and they wanted to give that gift to another woman. And I think that was something that, I mean, truly acting from 
altruism. Yeah. Um, now, at the Cleveland Clinic, we use exclusively a deceased donor model. So we decided the ethical complexity of subjecting a living donor to the risk of this procedure because procuring a uterus is not the same even as a radical hysterectomy. And in every major series, there's been complications to living donors. So we decided early on to pursue an exclusively deceased donor. I do think now that the science is well, that so much more is known, that there's a high likelihood that we will consider having a hybrid approach for our next trial. But that was our rationale for being deceased donor only. But there's certainly pros and cons to both. And I'm happy to talk about uh, the, the relative merits because it's, it's not as black and white issue there either. Yeah, there's a great video, I think it's from your fertility sterility article on YouTube about your program and the, with the video of the organ procurement of the hysterectomy. I mean, it's a fascinating video. I mean, it really is an incredible video to show. Right? It's not a simple hysterectomy, what you guys are doing. Yeah, what are the pros and cons since you alluded to it? Like, I am assuming that tissue is better with living donor versus the deceased. Deceased, you can get more radical, I guess, to the parametria? Yeah. So with first of all, with a deceased donor, you can uh, I mean you can take the internal iliacs with, you know, the uterine artery vein. And so you're just getting much more wide excision that you can with a living donor, obviously. There is potentially longer cold ischemia time uh, with the deceased donor, especially if you're procuring. We've altered our radius a couple of times in terms of procurement radius, how far out from our institution that will will go. And so a, a further out procurement means that you have longer cold ischemia time for that organ. Although our data, especially as we've shared and compared with the Baylor group, we don't see any difference in outcomes, but you know, these are still small sample size number. I'd say the biggest disadvantage of using a deceased donor, well, there's three actually. One is, is that we really don't get as much history. We're relying on secondhand information in the medical record. With which a living donor, you can get just such extensive information from that individual. The second thing is, is that there's really something to be said about a planned surgery. You can put on the date, you can assemble all the teams. Doing a uterus transplantation is an incredibly complex endeavor. And really, you need to have coordination between transplant teams. You have a procurement team, of course, and then you have the transplant team itself. But the vaginal anastomosis and the vessel anastomoses, I mean, these these are done by different teams. And so if you can do with a living donor and you can kind of set everything up ahead of time, um, that has great advantages over deceased donor where the call is always in the middle of the night and it's suddenly everyone's canceling all their clinic and transplant surgeons are used to that. Gynecologist is not really how we roll. And so the challenge is there. Well, you you mentioned on the video, one of the benefits of the deceased donor was that you could take more vagina because you're trying to take a lot less tissue in the living donor, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the big advantage is, I mean, number one is that you're not putting a living donor at risk. And then, yes, you're. it's not just vagina. I mean, typically, I think it's an interesting question for transgender transplants because now you're suddenly making a neo-vagina and attaching uh, this uterus. And so, having potentially a bigger donor vagina to add may, may be an advantage, but really it's the the increased vessels and, and also time of procurement. I mean, our first deceased donor procurement our portion, I mean, obviously it's combined with other transplant groups and they're, they're harvesting the life-saving organs first. And we're doing our first dissection at the beginning and then they, they harvest and then we're sort of right at the end because we're, of course, doing a vaginotomy and, and there's a concern for, for those life-saving organs, potentially uh, seeding bacteria and, and whatnot. But we're able to just like parametrium, take the, the, the uterine veins is, is what's technically most challenging and why a uterus procurement is not the same as a radical hysterectomy because these uterine veins, they're anomalous, they're different. They oftentimes, they're like wrapping around uh, the ureter and it's critical for venous outflow. And so it's really those, those veins that are uh, so challenging. But when you have a deceased donor that you don't need to preserve the ureter, you can move a lot quicker and faster. So Matt's Brandstrom, I mean, the living donor groups have really brought the, the operative time down. There's been a big push and focus on robotic and minimally invasive surgery. And that's why I think that the field is much more mature in terms of using living donors. But in the beginning, I mean, they were doing 12 plus hour surgeries to procure this uterus. So by no means, you know, a radical hysterectomy, much more complex. So 
Once you've got a uterus out, I mean, I imagine putting it back in looks a little different. What's the major blood supply that you're using on the recipient to attach the uterus to? And I guess you've got some collateral blood supply with the uterovarians as well. Are you using all four primary blood supplies to the uterus? And where are you, where are you attaching them? So inflow is typically just hooking up the uterine arteries to the external iliacs. External, okay. Yeah. There's some variations that have been been shown and proposed and, and I've seen with the internal iliacs before. Um, in terms of outflow, because that really is the biggest challenge, it's typically the uterine vein to the external iliac vein. As you say, the uterovarian has been used as an alternate outflow. Our group has actually published a paper using uh, a Y graft. We actually had an intraoperative, the venous outflow completely clotted off. We thought we were done. We uh, were closing up and just said, oh, let's do Doppler studies and it completely clotted off. And so our team, brilliant, used a graft of vessel from that same deceased donor and patched in to the external iliac through this patch. But the uterine ovarian, in fact, the United States Uterus Transplant Consortium. So that's this group that I mentioned that's highly collaborative. Uh, we published a paper really arguing that we should change terminology somewhat. So we've argued for the change in nomenclature for the inferior uterine veins and arteries and the superior uterine veins and arteries to really emphasize that you know this uterine ovarian, calling it the superior uterine veins because they, of course, anastomosis with that plexus along the lateral edge of the uterus. And so a lot of groups will, uh, certainly if they have difficulty, they're not able to get a good outflow or good specimen, inferiorly, they'll use the superior veins for outflow. Um, there's some been ethically problematic cases in China and India where they did oophorectomy on a living donor to get access to that outflow through the ovaries. And, and that's just simply not acceptable for a living donor. And so it's really just that short branch that can be used on the, the superior uterine veins. Wow. It's, it's incredible. And honestly, I, I, to think that we still have so much more to get through with all this stuff too. I'll, I'll try to move things along yeah, for- I apologize. For, I know. For, for your, no, I mean, yeah. listen, this is this is fascinating, but I also want, you know, want to be courteous and appreciative of your time. But I, I do want to get to the other side of it too, which is once it's in place, you know, we've got two pretty big things to think about. One of which is this is a donor organ, a graft, you know, so a patient's immune system has to be managed in a way that will allow that graft, not just surgically, but also immunologically to be able to survive. And then you're putting a little extra added challenge of having a pregnancy. Obstetricians deal with complicated pregnancies in regular, regular uteruses all day. So how do you manage the graft versus host? And how do you do that in a way that is safe for pregnancy? Well, we had the advantage of Liver kidney transplantation has been around now for several decades, and those transplant recipients get pregnant. And so we had a lot of prior data to go on. And the advantage that we have with uterus transplant, of course, is that most uh, liver kidney recipients who are pregnant oftentimes have comorbidities that are, again, selected patient population that we're doing for these initial uterus transplant trials are selected because of their lack of, of comorbidities. And a couple things on that point, another thing that, that differentiates uterus transplant from other organs is that it's truly the first and only ephemeral transplant, uh, a term coined by Dr. Tazakis at Cleveland Clinic, meaning that this is an organ that's put in with the expectation that it's removed later. So this isn't lifelong immunosuppression. Uh, it's potentially just a year or two of immunosuppression. And then that immunosuppression is stopped. Patients who undergo uterus transplantation, first there's a initial induction therapy. Oftentimes that's uh, done with MMF, tacrolimus, steroids, and then often switched to azathioprine. But typically our patients are on just tacrolimus and a low dose of prednisone with levels checked essentially weekly for their tacrolimus levels. And we've been monitoring kidney function. And in fact, there's a, a study hopefully coming out soon from the consortium where we've again pooled our data to look at any evidence of renal damage in these patients. Uh, but again, the advantages is that once they've completed their childbearing, which is typically one or sometimes two live-born children, the graft is removed. And we've seen even in those patients where we see increase in their creatinine, we see a recovery. It's incredible. But absolutely. I mean, immunosuppression is not something to be taken lightly. 
And it, it definitely has its own risks and, and particularly costs. That's actually where uh, a big portion of the cost of uterus transplant actually comes in because they're not cheap medications. Makes sense. I mean, we've had these other organs transplanted for a long time and we've many of these folks have become pregnant. So, you know, the other thing is I guess IVF has to happen, right? You have a vagina and a cervix and a uterus, but there's probably no fallopian tubes. There's no way for natural insemination to work, correct? That is correct. I mean, I do think that it's possible in the future that the fallopian tubes could be preserved. I don't see a reason why that, that we couldn't do this without in vitro fertilization. But currently the concern about this already being a, a risky enough procedure, the added risk of ectopic pregnancy or just infertility in general, other, other forms of infertility that are now unmasked uh, is too great. And so I'm not aware of any protocol currently that retains the fallopian tubes. They're typically removed at time of the procurement of the uterus. So IVF is a great question. And that, that goes into, I, I kind of just quickly talked a little bit about our screening process. Uh, there's a lot of medical exams that we're doing, imaging and serologic testing and, and, and other things. But one of the, the things before we actually put someone on the, the waiting list for an organ is we do IVF. I was going to ask when that happened in the process. You got you to gotta prove you can make an embryo before we give you a uterus. Yeah, and that's an interesting question that, or an interesting point rather, because we think, okay, what is the the purpose of this surgery? And there's something called the Montreal Criteria, which is the first sort of framework, ethical framework. And it's been hotly debated, but the essential idea is that the, the purpose of uterus transplantation is for childbearing and to give the experience of pregnancy. And there's been a lot of criticisms of that uh, ethical framework, and it's been revised. But uh, essentially, because you have patients who, like, let's say, have complete androgen insensitivity, right? So these are XY individuals who are phenotypically female, but don't have ovaries, right? Also don't have a uterus. Are they candidates for uterus transplantation? Of course, we mentioned briefly, you know, the transgender woman who would want to bear children. But there are those questions of, of gametes and currently... Uterus transplantation has only been done for those who who have ovaries, who have the potential for eggs. My guess is these conversations happened early in IVF. In the VA, they cover IVF, but it's, I think you have to be married. I mean, there's still some relics of that in current systems too. So this seems like inevitably this will evolve to include a much larger population of individuals who have absolute uterine infertility, right? Absolutely. So, you know, answer your earlier question, we, in our protocol, we want six cryopreserved embryos before we put them on the transplant waiting list. Universe of Alabama, I believe, is, is just three, but I, those are, they use PGTA, so pre-implantation genetic testing to confirm euploidy. And actually, ASRM has a committee opinion about uterus transplantation that actually is in desperate need of revision. There's some, some major flaws that was done pretty early on in the process, but essentially, there isn't a set number for how many embryos you need to cryopreserve. I've done now multiple, uh, two different patients, um, in one patient, multiple rounds of post-transplant egg retrievals. Those were a little scary at first because you can see this parametrium, these donated vessels, in some cases, just right in the way um, of the ovary. And so it, it's a situation that we wanted to avoid, but we ran out of, of embryos without getting her pregnant. Wow, yeah, because they ovaries sit right on the externals. I mean, it's like they hang out over there. Normally, you're not having blood supply to the uterus from that neighborhood. I actually had done surgery recently on somebody with a, a uterine anomaly, and they had just like the left side of the uterus, uh, vaginal genesis, and the blood supply was primarily off the external iliac. That was definitely a, uh, I told the resident, I'm just going to do this part of the surgery, if you don't <laughs> mind. It was stress-inducing. I was like, where in the world? I mean, it was one of those, the MRI we looked at a thousand times, and then we did it and said, oh, pull the uterus this way and the external goes, moves over. So yeah, that's the one part of this I can relate to, which is playing near the external iliacs. But are y'all putting more than one embryo in? Absolutely not. Yeah. In fact- Let's not stretch this thing. Yeah, yeah, no. Come on. It's interesting because we had, so we have one patient who has recurrent implantation failure, where I've met with people all over the world to try to figure out what we can do for this patient. And actually through that process, we found that almost every major trial has had at least one patient who, despite having high quality embryos, despite having what looks to be a high quality graft, good lining, everything else, having trouble getting pregnant. 
And, you know, this, this patient is, is sort of, we've tried, I mean, almost everything you can think of. And, and, you know, she was really pushing, can we just put two embryos in? And, and the problem is, is if we were to have a twin gestation, the media, I think, fallout and the pushback we would get, it, you know, this is such a sensitive time early on in the field. So everyone's very cautious. You know, anything we can do to reduce risk, we will do. Yeah, I mean, risk of twins, even with one embryo is higher, I think, right? In IVF. Yeah, I mean, to have a splitting of the embryos, you have a, like monozygotic twins. I mean, that that's pretty rare, pretty on par with nature. But certainly putting two embryos in with a high prognosis patient, you're looking at 25 plus percent chance of twins, which is unacceptably high risk. The uterus is a dynamic organ, right? Like a non-pregnant uterus and a uterus at term are two very different looking, acting, functioning organs. And so to implant a non-gravid uterus and sit and wait and watch for it to grow to term and thinking about all the changes that happen in the uterus and the blood vessels and all those things. And to think that an implanted uterus can still do all that to me is just miraculous. Yes. It is just an unbelievable, I can't imagine waiting that first term kid, like waiting for that vessel to tear, like for, <laughs> you know, nine months, just like, oh my, every minute of every day waiting. But the fact that they've, they've worked, so, you know, what are the success rates? Because again, the whole thing, you know, we can talk about the miracle of pregnancy, but this is a real miracle. This is something, something miraculous in a new, in a new, a new definition of the word. Absolutely, and, and I mean, I think it really just shows that the uterus truly is the most miraculous organ. Its plasticity, its regenerative abilities, really doesn't exist anywhere else in the human body. Arguably, maybe the ovary has some similar properties, but but no, it's the uh, vagina. <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll say the female reproductive tract is just <laughs> amazing. Um, its ability to accommodate and and uh, and to change. And I will tell you, the most amazing MRI that I've ever seen in my life was that first MRI from our our first successful uh, uterine uh, transplant graft because it looks so normal. It looked like it had always been there, and I had to just say to myself, "No, this." did not exist in this person's body one day ago. And then the fact that uh, that patient went on to have a live born child who we get every year, at least we get updates and pictures and it just this beautiful child who it's simply remarkable and amazing. So what is the success rate? Like there's two levels of success rates. There's one is a successful uterine transplantation, but then you also have successful pregnancy, live birth, right? Yeah, you've touched on a really important thing that also differentiates uterus transplants from any other type of graft. Because if you think about it, oftentimes you can gauge the success, you know, almost immediately. In this case, the United States Consortium has actually defined five levels or milestones of success. So initially, you know, beginning of menstruation, really fascinating to see a woman so excited to get a period because she really missed out on that life experience. They report that it gets old after a couple of months, but it's very exciting the first couple of months. <laughs> How many periods does it take to no longer to be asking for a morena? That's hilarious. <laughs> but then, yeah, but but ultimately the, and I can go over all the other milestones, but ultimately the measure of success is a baby, you know, at the end of the day. And so that isn't determined until potentially years later. Interestingly, with the uterus, we have uh, access to the organ externally through the cervix. And so these patients will undergo cervical biopsies on a regular basis, and we can monitor for rejection uh, there relatively non-invasively, which is pretty remarkable. So what we've seen in our program, and this matches with other programs in the country, is that if we can get the graft to remain viable for two weeks after the surgery, we're going to keep that graft. All of the graft losses that we've had and, and our other colleagues have had have typically, it happens in the first couple of days. Sometimes as late as day 12, but those first two weeks are critical. Once we can have a one-year graft survival, uh, when we looked at our data, and this is a, a JAMA paper that we put out, uh, our group, Baylor and Penn together sharing our data, we found a 74% pregnancy. Among those with a viable graft is actually an 83% live birth rate. Better than you know IVF. Again, we are sort of cherry-picking patients because we're taking the best patients and we're cryopreserving embryos, but that's a pretty darn good success rate. That's incredible. Um, and then those who actually have, sorry, that was my 74% was the one-year graft survival. So 74% ha 
have all been successful. And, and as you trend that, the numbers have gone up. So both in our gestational age at delivery and in graph survival at one year, as you look at the different centers, it's been a uh, linear upsloping just as we've gone more experience and more comfort. So um, how many pregnancies do people end up having with their transplanted uterus? So far, is it just one each or, or how has that worked out? So we just had, I believe last September, we just had our first second baby from the same mm-hmm. uterus. Prior to that, all of our patients elected for a cesarean hysterectomy. Dallas has delivered, I can't recall off the top of my head how many double births they've had. I believe they even have one patient who, after much back and forth and discussion and counseling, and she's going actually for a third, um, which was not their original intention, but also speaks to the fact that these women have autonomy. Is the mode of delivery all all, uh, C-section or can you do vaginal? Yeah, cesarean section. No one's, no one has, and I don't think will, at least in the foreseeable future, do anything else but a cesarean. Has anyone gone into spontaneous labor and dilated? It's one of those things like you may find out when they show up to the hospital, right? Yeah, I and mean, we've certainly had patients where we're picking up uterine contractions. We've had a prom, and in one patient, she and actually both of her pregnancies had premature rupture of membranes and, and had contractions. She couldn't feel those contractions, uh, but we were picking them up. How did you know they had prom because they don't have a vagina, right? Yeah, they do. Yeah, no, they absolutely have to have. In fact, all of our patients, uh, because they're all MRKH patients, they all had vaginal dilation and then the vaginal anastomosis. Because you know, think about it, you still need to have an outflow tract, right? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so the menstrual effluent has to yeah, go out through the vagina. So that that's where it was detected. Wow. See, clearly I, I'm not that familiar with the, the uterine transplantation <laughs> technique. <laughs> But it's pretty amazing. Well, like every every step of it, right? You, th- you, have to, you have to think about like every single step of fertility, reproduction, and pregnancy and labor and all of it. The fact you just said something that I had, I wanted to sound like I had done some homework today, but yeah, they can't feel contractions. There's no nervous connection, right? There's no way for patients to know. Are they just like feeling their belly get tight, or how do they know they are having contractions? Yeah. So, and and this is where it'd be great to get some of the patients on a future podcast to sort of share some of their experiences from a patient standpoint. And certainly that they're able to still feel baby move. But yeah, in terms of innervation of the uterus, the cervical biopsies that we'll take, there will sometimes will feel some discomfort, most likely because that point of the anastomosis in the vagina. Brings up an interesting sort of side note, because I know one of the questions that you were interested in is, is problems and challenges from a reproductive standpoint. A big proportion of these patients have vaginal strictures and stenosis. In one of the European trials, it was actually quite severe that they actually had to place a stents in the vagina because such severe scarring. Because once you lose that vaginal access, it's not just for uh, the menstrual effluent, but also placing your transfer catheter through. The concern about needing to do a DNC for early loss, how do you get access to the uterus? Luckily, even in our more severe cases, we've never lost access through the vagina. Um, our patients have been very good with either vaginal dilation or, or in a couple cases, we've had to take them to the OR just for revision surgery or digital dilation. But very interesting doing embryo transfers You know, when you can't see the cervix at all and you're completely reliant on ultrasound guidance just to find the donor cervix because you're feeding your little transfer catheter through a you know three millimeter hole. So on that topic of unforeseen challenges and things that can arise that you kind of take for granted in most patients. Wow. Well, I just wanted to ask, what do you see as the future? You've alluded to it. I mean, it sounds like there's some cash pay programs, multiparous uteri, do you think it's going to be like more centers doing it? Are they going to be growing uteruses in a lab? <laughs> yeah. Tony Atala's lab. Yeah, Dean Kamen, wasn't that the Segway guy? That was his next big thing was growing tissue in labs. Yeah, and actually Matt Brandstrom has some papers of porcine models using um, uh, bioengineered uterus. I think that, again, the uterus is this kind of magical organ that is able to completely transform itself. And so I'm a little skeptical that we have any anything on the near horizon in terms of bioengineered uterus, but that would certainly sidestep so many of these you know, ethical 
concerns and you know with immunosuppression and everything else if you could just take someone's cells and, and grow a made-to-order uterus. And I, and I think one day we'll probably get there. But yeah, in terms of what I see for the future, so one is, and you touched on this, is cost. I mean, we're looking, as I said, cost-effectiveness analysis. I led the effort to get a CPT code, and I'm really pleased to say that we were able to get a Category 3 AMA CPT code. There's a billing code now for uterus transplantation that came into effect about a, a year and a half ago. And we're working to get that to Category 1 status. But really, to be able to convince insurers to pay, we you know there's work with Resolve and, and really saying, okay, we need to treat infertility as a disease and look at the treatments uh, that are required to help patients for their particular diagnosis. We also need to understand what is the cost. And so that's a sort of big area of attention and focus. Another thing is the shortage of available donors. We did an analysis of a paper we're hoping to publish, we meaning the consortium, looking at deceased donors. And we estimate, because if you think about it, I mean, for a deceased donor, they need to be a brain dead donor. They need to be female. They need to have a uterus, so not a prior hysterectomy, and ideally have a prior delivery of that uterus and need to ideally be lower risk. So, And when you start adding all this criteria, suddenly our estimates are that it may only be in the range of three to 400 potential uteruses in the whole country from deceased donors. And that's not even taking into account the fact that we need consent from families and other problems such as that. So really, the living donor route probably is our way to address what, what we see as, as what the demand is, which is another question. What is the true demand for this? Because right now, we know that we've had 5,000 people approach these three centers in the last five years, but what is the true demand? I already mentioned transgender and gender diverse populations, but disadvantaged groups, it shouldn't be that but it is a fact that 88% of the patients in the US who've gotten uterus transplants are white. And that's certainly not reflective of the, the AAUFI population. Other things I see in the, the horizon are, are really leveraging minimally invasive uh, surgery techniques, uh, robotic surgery, and then considering the fallopian tube preservations we talked about. So yeah, I think that the, it's a really exciting time and I just have been so grateful to be part of, if not the very ground floor, just shortly after the beginnings of, of this just truly innovative reproductive technology. It's incredible. And, and thank you so much for your time with all the, all the things we listed at the beginning of the show. I know your time is quite valuable. And so it means a great deal to us and uh, to our listeners that you were able to come here and, and share your experience and and share the experience of the patients who you've, who you've taken care of and what must be an incredible feeling to be doing work that's never been done before, that's truly groundbreaking. We don't get to do that in medicine very much. And so thank you for not just your time today, but thank you for doing the work you're doing. And again, my, my, my wheels are spinning, all the things that, you know, we joked at the beginning, how are we going to fit this into an hour? I feel like we had to like run through this. We've had a number of these shows already and I don't think I've felt as rushed and pressed for time to get through this just because of the volume of information just to get to the very basic, you know, bare bones process for uterine transplant. So, you know, thank you, Amy. Do you have any other thoughts uh, as, we, as we finish up here? I just want to say, world, look out for Elliot Richards. <laughs> he is coming your way big time. And I am so appreciative that you made the time for this uh, show and I know the listeners will be super appreciative of all, all your insights. Lots of interesting aspects to it, and we're just looking forward to what the future will bring. And, and if I could add with just a final plug, uh, we've been invited, myself and, and Kate O'Neill and Lisa Johannesson, so us representing the, those three centers I mentioned, uh, we've been invited to sponsor a debate on uterus transplantation at ASRM this year. So please, uh, for those listening, if you're going to be going to ASRM, please check that out the day and time, I believe, to be announced. That's great. Well, thank you again, uh, Amy. It's always good to work with you. And Elliot, thank you so much for your time. That was so much fun. Uh, and we look forward to chatting with you again at some point soon. Great. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman. And Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon. 
with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinsky. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.